Welcome to Rethink Reality, a podcast for creatives to learn, adapt, and future-proof themselves for the XR revolution. Tech guru Don Allen III has conversations with innovative players in the AR, VR, and XR space. Develop your knowledge with expert advice and get ready to rethink reality. Hello and welcome to Rethink Reality. Um, I want to introduce you to our guest today, Jonathan Winbush. Uh, Multi-award-winning MoGraph artist, Jonathan Winbush has been diving deep into motion graphics in general, the workflow that combines traditional animation tools with real-time tech. Currently, Winbush is working on a series with Epic Games showing how to leverage Unreal Engine for motion graphics artists. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good, man. I appreciate you having me on. When you think of motion graphics, what do you like and what do you not like about motion graphics? Okay, so originally, like, I have a degree in motion graphics and VFX. I got a bachelor's degree in it. And so when I was in school, we were learning both. Um, this was maybe back in, like, 2006 is when I graduated. And so visual effects was more, like, compositing and stuff of that nature. And then motion graphics was more... You know, like graphic-y stuff, like 3D animations, title animations, things of that nature. And I seem to stare more in that direction just because it seemed like VFX, you're working on like the same shots over and over until it looked photo real. Right. But with motion graphics, it was almost like you work on a project, get it done in a few weeks, and then you're on to the next one. So it's like always something new to keep working on. Would you say um, today, do you, you define yourself as like a motion graphics artist? It's tough to say because it seems like as the years go on, like everything just becomes more blurred. Like, you know, I've done mm-hmm. VR work, I've done a little AR work, starting to do some virtual production work. So it's getting harder to say like, I'm strictly just this because I seem right. to encompass a whole bunch of other skill sets as well. Honestly, I guess the field is so new. Like I was talking to somebody the other day. It's like, we don't actually know anybody that retired as a motion graphics artist just because like the field is so new and it's always evolving. So it's kind of like, you know, you're into the unknown when you dive into this field. Is there anybody that you look up to uh, for inspiration? Um, I have to say number one inspiration would be Mother Nature itself. As crazy as it seems, like I go on long four hour hikes like all the time, just kind of going out and just kind of looking at nature for what it is, looking at the way the sun kind of reacts to the environment around you. And just being out in nature really drives through on my work because it's like I'm taking a lot of photos when I'm out. And then I come back and kind of just examine those photos that I'm taking. And that's helping me with like my lighting and shadows and just color compositions in general. So I would probably say the number one inspiration for me I look forward to is um, nature itself. That's beautiful. Um, do you have a particular environment that you like to, you know, explore in the most? Um, well, since we're in Southern California, I'm down here in Orange County, so I go out to the Laguna Canyons a lot because, I mean, you have a whole plethora of different type of environments. Like you have the real deep hills and then you could go all the way down to the ocean. And I mean, you're just, you know, it's almost like the environment is changing the closer you get to the ocean. So you get to experiment or not experiment, but experience a whole bunch of different like plants and insects and things of that nature. So yeah, down here in Orange County in this general area. 
you have a lot of similar interest to me. You love synthwave and cyberpunk and retro aesthetic. Um, yes. Exactly is synthwave, if you had to describe it. I guess you could say like a lot of inspiration is pulled from the 80s. Like the color scheme is a lot of purple hues and orange hues and blue hues. And it just kind of has that. I guess it's more in the era of like Top Gun, Terminator, that era of cinematics and maybe Tron. And then the music that comes along with it is almost like this. I don't want to say it's like a ripoff of the 80s, but it's like almost like a a modern interpretation of if like somebody would try to make a track from the 80s, what it would Mm -hmm. sound like, you know, like if they're trying to mimic it. But I think it sounds pretty dope, especially like a lot of lo-fi channels on YouTube and stuff like that. Like I listen to that stuff all day. Yes, you listen to Chill uh, Chill Cow, Chill Cow, and Chill Wave, and um, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch that I have to yeah. Five beats, which is <laughs> crazy because even um, Sirius XM, like I have a subscription there, and they mm-hmm. just came out with a whole bunch of channels in that genre, so it's becoming Did more popular. Really? Oh, that's yeah. great to hear. <laughs> more people get to get the chill vibes with the retro grain added to it. Yeah, it's, it's easy to work to because you don't have to worry about lyrics or anything like your mind can kind of just focus on your work and not get distracted by any words or anything of that nature. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so important, especially because like a lot of the work that you do is so immersive and in a computer. So it's nice that the music can often be like an escape from that at times. Exactly. Yeah. It almost reminds me of like the old school days when I used to chill at like the coffee shops. You know, you just have like that jazz playing in the background. You kind of just zone out. I came across your work through the dozens and dozens of tutorials that you've made. And it just cracks me up because I was literally just like watching tutorials. And then in one of them, you just put on your Instagram handle. And I was like, why am I not following him? So I just followed you right away. And (laughs) and I'm like, I've seen so many of your videos. And I know I know a lot about your views based off of them and, you know, and how you teach. And then when you followed back and like just reached out, I was like, this is so cool. I just love how we're kind of blending, you know, um, a digital connection, but then making it into something more. It's definitely crazy because like, like you just posted the Sour Patch Kid thing on your Instagram the other day. And yes. I was like, that's crazy because I saw that like a year ago, but I didn't see it through your Instagram feed. I saw it through Twitter. So I never knew who originally did it. I just wow. saw like people just sending this out like, hey, this is the future of you know, like product placement or, you know, like immersive um, marketing. And I'm looking at it and I was like, dang, that's dope. Why didn't even I think of that? <laughs> because, you know, at the oh time God. I was really diving into AR and like I was beta testing on Adobe Aero and stuff like that. And once yeah. I saw that, I was like, man, that's crazy. That's exactly where AR is going. You know, for a lot of folks that are on here, you know, this, this podcast is very much about the AR, VR and XR space. And uh, I know you have a lot of experience in these areas. You go ahead and maybe describe what is VR to you and maybe like say, how is it different than AR? Yeah, so to me, VR, I mean, of course, it stands for virtual reality, which in my aspect, I feel is anything that takes you out of your current environment. So I know in the VR space, there's been this long going argument between like, you know, immersive VR and 360 VR. But to me, as long as it takes you out of your current state and makes you forget where you're at is virtual reality to me. So like I've done a lot of work in 360 VR 
and like I've seen some really cool 360 VR pieces, even though they're video, I look at them as being like cinematic VR because yeah. not everybody wants to jump around and run around in immersive space. It's kind of like going to a movie theater. It's like you sit down, you want to experience VR, but you just want to be, you know, given down a path and watch a story unfold around you. So. Right. It's, um, yeah, so virtual reality to me is just anything that takes you out of your current environment. And then AR, uh, augmented reality, it mixes your reality and the virtual reality. So you still have, you know, the weightness of you being in your own house or outside or wherever you're at, but you also have CG elements that would not normally be there engulfing your space. What kind of projects have you done for VR as the platform the first couple of projects i did were i did the first ever music um hip-hop music video in vr with mix master making the beastie boys i did two videos with him which both went on to Cannes film festival so i was really proud of that and then from there i did some 360 vr work for candy crush the video game they actually made like a a tv show version of it that was hosted by mario lopez and so we had 360 cameras going through the set as like people were playing the candy crush game and stuff during a live show which was really cool and then so last year for the special olympics the international one that was held in abu dhabi they actually broadcasted the entire program in 360 VR. And so I had the honor of creating the opening ceremonies in 360 VR to kick off that project there. So that one was, you know, I've done a lot of work with Special Olympics and my my youth. So that one was really touching to me that they would even reach out. It's so cool, like the integration of, you know, multiple passions, something you've had experience kind of working with in the past and then mixing it with like your passion for technology today must be like a really cool feeling to kind of see those two blending together. Yeah, just the fact that people are, you know, kind of getting hip to it and even want to just experiment with it, I think is cool in itself. Like places you wouldn't think that really would want to experiment. They're like, hey, why don't we try this out? Where, where do you think VR is going? Yeah, so it's tough. I know, like, originally, when I first got into VR years ago, everybody thought it was going to be taken off in the gaming space. Mm-hmm. But, um, just sitting here in 2020, especially in the world that we're in, I'm seeing VR used a lot more for production. And like last year, I started seeing it being used in movies like they would use it in The Lion King and of course, Ready Player One. Like they right. would be on set, you know, just in an empty warehouse. They would throw on like a HTC Vive and then they would have Africa right there. And they're setting up like camera locations where they want to shoot the different scenes for The Lion King. And so that opened up to my eyes to maybe VR is going to be used more as like a production tool more than, you know, like entertainment. Cause it still kind of seems like a lot of people don't have the space for it or they're not sold on it exactly. But I'm starting to see like artists, they're sculpting in VR. We're having, you know, camera scouts, scouting the locations in VR. And yeah, I'm seeing it being used more as a tool than, you know, actually an entertainment device all this virtual production work is kind of like very inspiring, you know, having your directors go in there with virtual cameras, placing things around props and choosing camera angles with teleportation and then, yeah, yeah. and then setting these up, you know, in time and then, you know, rendering out these beautiful images. Um, have you seen any of the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian project? I did not as much as I should have, but yeah, I, 
feel like I've seen a lot through osmosis because everybody talks about it so much. <laughs> I know, sorry. <laughs> All their backgrounds are using a screen and they mostly have Unreal Engine running on them with very right. photorealistic scenes and sets that are back there. Um, yep. And it's just like, it's just kind of mind blowing because I feel like just a few years ago, I was just impressed enough when I saw um, for Jungle Book, they had some previs that was being viewed right next to the screens of the DPs. So they could see like a very low poly versions of the animals and the vegetation uh, in their camera feed. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. It's like, you yeah. know, helps them get an idea. And then just about four years later, we have it where it's completely photorealistic and you couldn't even tell that you were looking at a computer graphic back there. And we're just in the beginning stages. So it's kind of hard to tell because it feels like the Wild West right now. Mandalorian is like the poster child of the case study of, hey, this stuff could be done. So I'm curious to see like once more, you know, like higher profile projects start to adapt it into the workflow where exactly they're going to take it. Like I can't imagine like the next Marvel Universe film being filmed in virtual production, like how they're going to leverage the technology and push it further where you see like everybody, all the superheroes in a row and then they cut to like the green screen footage of it and yeah. you just have like all the characters just in a room with a giant green screen. It's like now they can actually be in that environment and not have to do the chroma king. It's like, you know, you can still be fighting in that post-apocalyptic world. So it's going to be crazy to see where they take this. It's going to look so cool. And it's like, it's going to be so close to the holodeck. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for those that are listening to this, the holodeck was like first brought up on Star Trek and they had essentially a virtual reality room that is so immersive that you can also like physically touch and interact with objects and all looks sort of real. Um, and it's just crazy that, you know, we're in a time where like that kind of technology is being put to use <laughs> in, in real life applications, not just in science fiction storytelling. My brother, he's, well, he's retired military now, but he was telling me about stuff they were doing in the military with VR. Like they would, um before they would get deployed over to the Middle East, they actually have like this giant set that would have kind of like basic geometry of how like the area is going to look once they get deployed over there. And so like just walking out to the area, you would just see basic geometry of like stone houses or whatever. But when you put on a VR headset, it actually takes you to that environment that you're going to be going into. So they're running like, you know, like tactic missions and they're getting, you know, really familiar with the area before they actually get to go there. So by the time they get there, it's kind of like they already know the area and they can base their strategies based off of, you know, the information that they already have. So, I mean, just seeing how it's being used in the combat space. I mean, that right there is, you know, that's a leg up for our military. Just to kind of reiterate, you're saying they get like almost like a simulation of the environment beforehand. They get yeah. to explore it in virtual reality beforehand safely. And then when they're deployed, they already have like kind of muscle memory of what the landscape should be like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of reminded me of um, like the X-Men when they would train inside the danger room. You know, in that room would change environments on them and stuff like that. So when he was describing it to me, I was like, man, you guys are like the X-Men out there. <laughs> it's like you're, <laughs> you're training in VR simulations. I noticed, you know, you've been doing a lot of cool tutorials lately. And um, specifically like this week, I think you even did stuff with um, with Maxon for NAB. 
what was it like uh, kind of, you know, having a presentation for NAB? Yeah, that one's been a long time coming. Like I've done presentations at a lot of shows like with AMD and the Seuss, but it's like I've always been reaching, trying to get on that max on stage. And of course it comes during the COVID, <laughs> during the COVID year. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was still cool. It just, uh, um, you know, the guys over at Maxon, Matthias and Paul and Rick, they're all great guys. So even though it was a virtual event, they still, you know, brought that camaraderie together and made all the artists still feel special. And that was that was a great one. Like I got to introduce a lot of motion graphics community to Unreal Engine, which Maxon was really receptive about. So I appreciate them putting me on the stage to, you know, just give my theories and kind of just letting people know like, Hey, you can work with cinema 40 and unreal and get these type of results. So I thought that was really cool that they were open to allow me to do that. I actually watched your NAP presentation and I was very moved by it. Um, I immediately jumped into unreal engine and started porting over stuff, got the plugin working with like a, you know, data Smith. Um, one thing that you mentioned or you showed at the end, when you show (laughs) how fast it exported, your frames out of Unreal Engine at the end, when yeah. you're literally watching it playback pretty much in real time, and then you said, oh yeah, it's exporting each of the frames that we're seeing. <laughs> I had this like, like my face, you know, I just had this big grin on my face, like, oh my God, the potential with something like this is absurd. Oh, I was definitely excited because I've been saving a lot of my electric bill. So <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I have this, I have a bunch of computers here and I've been using Redshift and, yeah. you know, with GPU rendering, you can render over your own render farm. So it's like whenever I have a project, I get off where my machine is going and all the GPUs are just screaming and yep. I get like that $400 electric bill at the end of the month. And it's just like man, something's got to change. And then, um, you know, I start experimenting with Unreal and my latest system, I just have like a Threadripper 3 and one 2080 Ti and I'm rendering everything on just one machine with one GPU. And it's like, I'm getting the same results that I was getting across multiple GPUs. It's just crazy. So that's absurd. How many GPUs were you using before to get the same results that you're getting out of one from Unreal Engine? Okay, so my other machine, I have four 1080 Ti's. I have a machine with a Quadro 4000 and then this 2080. So yeah, about six, six GPUs. Six GPUs is getting you the same results as one GPU running Unreal as the renderer? It's, it's faster because everything is just literally, like I'm using ray tracing and everything. Wow. and. I'm just cranking them out. So what the stuff that I'm going to be showing off with, um, with Unreal Engine that I'm like doing sponsored by Epic Games, I'm going to show you guys like step by step how I'm taking like projects from Cinema 4D, bringing them into Unreal and, you know, getting the project set up and everything and then rendering out in real time and no time flat. And it's like, if I have any changes, I make the changes and then I can render again and still have my final result. Like, it's pretty crazy. That is so crazy, man. I don't think people understand how big of a deal this is for the space (laughs) of design and like graphics and just like how, you know, how much more volume you can output now. Yeah, we have to be careful with it, though, because once the clients catch on, you know. Oh, oh <laughs> gonna, right. Crap, I didn't yeah. think about that. They already expect you to, you know, make changes on a flip. So once they actually know you can do that, <laughs> it's like, yeah, so I've been kind of just careful with that. Not giving stuff back too fast. 
I see what you mean. Because now clients are going to be like, oh, so we heard you're using Unreal Engine. And you're going to say, yeah. And like, oh, so you can work in real time. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. And like, ah, so when we need to change, you can make it immediately <laughs> in real <Yeah>. time. <laughs> no more overnight renders. It's like we want to see it now. Wow. Dang, that is a double-edged sword. Um, I think so. we just have to deal with it, though, because they are going to catch on because... You know, there's going to be other people like myself that want to compete in this space. And, yeah. you know, they might I might make the mistake of like giving them too quick of a deliverable. And then they're like, wait a second, what were you using? And then <laughs> I slip up and then the next designer who comes to them and says it's going to take them a week to render this out. They're going to say, oh, well, we only we want this done within you know two hours from our revisions. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that happened with GPU rendering. I remember going from the basic render of cinema and literally taking days to render something that looked decent and then getting octane. And it was like, man, I can render this overnight. This is crazy. And now it's like to the point to where it's like, (laughs) man, I can render this instantly. This is crazy. I have that same feeling. I've been using Redshift and I thought this was like the biggest game changer ever. But then literally, I'll be honest, it's been specifically your videos that have kind of translated it correctly for me. (laughs) Like, Like other people try to talk about how cool Unreal Engine is, but they've made it really, really abstract for me. And I wasn't like connecting the dots when I saw your videos and you just like explain exactly what this difference is, it's, it's very clear that this is a hundred percent the future of like where this is going. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I try to make it as concrete as possible just because whenever like last, actually it's been a year now, like last SIGGRAPH is when they announced the DataSmith plugin to integrate wow. Cinema 4D into Unreal. So I remember I was at that show and once they said that, you know, I, I kind of like I was playing around with Unity. I was kind of dabbing into Unreal. But once they said that, I was like, OK, I'm going home tonight seeing if this is the real deal or not. So I took like one of my projects, yeah. ported it over. It wasn't 100 percent there, but it was good enough to, you know, pique my interest and keep working with it. So that night I was actually putting together some stuff. And I was recording it for myself so I wouldn't forget. And then I was like, you know what? I should put this up on YouTube. So I just went through my steps again, mm-hmm. put it up on YouTube, and then went to SIGGRAPH the next day. And that's when I met with Paul and some of the guys over at Epic. They're like, dude, how you put that out quick? We just announced this. And I was like, well, I was just excited. And <sighs> it, it's like that tutorial kind of like changed my life because that just brought so much attention to me and what I was doing. And it just... Like it made me kind of like, I don't want to say the face of Unreal, but mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of people when they hear Winbush now, they think Unreal Engine, which, you know, I'll, I'll wear that proudly, but it was all because of that one tutorial that now people, you know, they start coming to me for their Unreal knowledge in motion graphics. You know, your passion and interest in this tool is kind of what led you to make a tutorial before anybody else. So like, you know, what advice do you have for kind of having, you know, putting your work out there, you know, making a tutorial, putting it out there and being the first to it? Like cause some people get really nervous or, you know, their their esteem might be not that high. And they're like, I don't know if I want to put out my work because I'm scared I'm going to get berated or judged. But you weren't. And it's like this amazing thing. And this you said this thing changed your life, this tutorial. If you look at my very first tutorial, like I was terrified just because you know it's like the way i got started doing tutorials was i mean you know this when you're doing creative work 
you're taking in so much knowledge that it's hard to retain all of it. And so what I used to do was I used to take screen captures of my workflow. Like if I'm working on something and I figure something out, then I would go back and screen capture that and put it into like my own archive just so maybe like three months from now that problem might come up again. It's like I could watch my screen capture and be like, oh yeah, this is what I did to do that because I would always get stuck like that. Like I figure something out six months later, another client would have that same need. I'd be like, oh crap, how did I do that? I know I did that before. So I just started keeping these archives and friends would hit me up like, hey, do you know how to do such and such? And I'd be like, oh, you know what? I have this video. Let me, you know, we transfer it over to you. And then somebody was like, dude, why don't you just start putting this stuff up on YouTube? And I was just terrified. I'm like, man, I don't, you know, the internet's scary. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown man, but it's like, you know, I'm still, you know, leery of what people would say online and stuff like that. So right. I, I finally, I did it. I got the courage to do it. My first tutorial, you know, it was okay, but that gave me the confidence to keep going. Once I started getting comments of people like, you know what, thank you for putting this out there. I would have never figured this out. That gave me the confidence to kind of keep going. And just over time, you kind of just build kind of like a muscle memory to it. Like you don't even think about what's going to happen when you post it, you get more comfortable in front of the camera and it just starts to become second nature. And after a while, it just like, within one year I made like a complete transformation like I was always an introvert in the past like yeah I did talks at conferences and stuff Mm -hmm. but I was never really comfortable around a lot of people but starting to do you know just put myself out there more now I could go out into an environment and you know I could talk to anybody at the end of the day it's like you don't want to give somebody that much power to make you stop what you want to do and pursue your dreams and so you kind of just go delete that comment or ignore it and just keep pushing forward because at the end of the day it's all about where you want to strive to be so you know if you're starting at a and you want to get the z just keep pushing until you get the z and don't let nobody get in your way i really like how you said like you started off by just making these for yourself this is just a useful tool for you to archive your process and then somebody else was like, hey, that video, like, how do you do this? You send them your video. I mean, that, that's so cool. You're a testament to this as well with your Sour Patch Kids thing. You put it out there and then the world just started coming to you. Like you said, you were going out to India and doing all types of talks. I mean, same thing happened to me. Like I got flown out to headline a conference out in Beijing, China, which if so I wouldn't cool. have put myself out there, that stuff would have never happened. So right. you put yourself out there and, you know, you reach for the stars and you just never know my you know who might be watching and what might happen for you what's your philosophy when it comes to making tutorials and videos i would say be authentic and whatever you feel can help anybody out there just put it out because if you figured it out there's chances are that somebody else out there is going to have the same problem and so that's how you build a community around yourself just you know be authentic put the information out there and don't be detracted by the people with the negative comments because people are going to come after you, but that's just the nature of the beast being on the internet. So I know that you've been focusing a lot lately on um, working with Epic Games to kind of make motion graphics um, savvy people familiar with Unreal Engine. Um, so let's say I'm a, a graphic designer, a motion graphic designer. 
Should I be afraid of Unreal Engine? Absolutely not. I think right now is the perfect time to get in and learn because, you know, with the initiatives that Epic has put forth with all the money that they're making off of Fortnite, they're giving away so many resources free, whether it's the acquisition of Quixel. So you get that complete library of mega scans, materials and 3D photogrammetry assets and everything else that comes with that. And then they just released the... um the facial capture software for free because they acquired a facial capture company a couple months ago and now that's already out for free so if you have an iphone you can start doing facial capture animations free and then of course unreal engines free if you use it for anything but making an interactive experience and so there's just some legal jargon there like if you're using it for broadcast or movies or anything of that nature it's 100 free and then if you're making say like an interactive experience or a video game it's free up to if you make anywhere around one million dollars i believe so like if you put out a what? game Whoa. and you make a million dollars then you have to start paying epic five percent but if you make a game or interactive experience and you only make nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars then that's yours to keep you don't have to give epic anything so it's just these crazy initiatives like you know we have to thank the kids paying for all the Fortnite skins and dances because they make so much money off of that that they're just giving us all this stuff for free which is wild so there's no reason why nobody should at least you know give it a try at this point I know it's so cool how much stuff they're giving away and it's crazy how much just how much money they have made off of Epic Games' Fortnite. I mean, it's absurd, but it's nice that they're giving so much of it back. For those that are listening, what if they don't know, uh, could you kind of describe what Megascans is? Yeah, so there's this company, but they started a few years back. They started by making photogrammetry assets, which is taking real-world assets, like say, like for instance, a rock. So you have like a giant rock or a boulder. You would take thousands of pictures around it and then you would bring it into like a 3D software and actually make a 3D object based off of those pictures. And the result is a real looking 3D object that you could use in your movies or your games. And so what this company did, they perfected that pretty much so they scan stuff all around the world and they're just taking up all these crazy like mountainsides and giant boulders and even like objects under the ocean like there's a ton of stuff that they've been scanning and even surfaces as well and then they upload it to their server which is called the Quixel Mega Scans library they're up to I want to say like a hundred thousand assets as of this point and chances are you've seen their stuff like it's been used in the jungle book it's been used in call of duty it's been used in star wars like their stuff is all over the place so it's like you have these movie triple a ready assets at your disposal to do what you want with them that's probably going to save a lot of time as like a designer if you're trying to like just get something that looks really good really quickly i'm guessing you can just go in get some assets for mega scans and then populate your scene start animating cameras and you didn't have to model those rocks you didn't have to paint those rocks you didn't have to uv unwrap those rocks it's all like scans that are beautiful that are going to look really great when you light them and add some volumetric fog and whatnot right yeah exactly like if you go to quixel's youtube channel they often put up like a bunch of different tutorials like they'll have artists come on to actually work at like game studios and stuff like that and they'll say like okay we have um, Counter-Strike. We like this map on Counter-Strike. We're going to rebuild it in Unreal using completely Mega Skins assets and the thing looks amazing. Or they'll build like a World of Warcraft scene using Mega Skins assets just to kind of, you know, break it down like, hey, 
these are what you have at your disposal and these are the type of stuff that you can make with them. So I would definitely check those guys out and see what they're doing because that's what inspired me to even get into Unreal to begin with. How long have you been getting into Unreal Engine? It's only been about since last year. Yeah, so last year at SIGGRAPH when they announced the Datasmith plugin, that's when I completely made the dive because before that, I would just kind of, you know, bounce back and forth between Unity and Unreal. I didn't really know which one I wanted to pick up and they were both so foreign to me, just, you know, being like a motion graphics artist. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so it was just like, I think it was the whole right. Datasmith plugin with the integration between Cinema and Unreal that really just, you know, that solidified me right there because it's like, okay, now I could use my knowledge of Cinema and implement what I know as Cinema into Unreal. And, you know, it's like, I like the Unreal interface, so it just felt more natural. Like, I know you can integrate C4D files into Unity, but it felt like I was doing a lot of hack jobs to get what I wanted, and I still wouldn't get there. And so it's, you know, it's like Unreal is good for me, but I know artists that, you know, they live and die by Unity. So it's all about what, you know, what's comfortable to you. But, you know, like I was saying, like all the free incentives that Epic gives, that kind of makes it more, you know, appetizing to jump into Unreal over Unity. Right. What kind of things are you trying to learn next? Like what kind of skills are you trying to build? <laughs> um, and, you know, from any from any kind of software or tool or pipeline, like what's what's next on the list of learns for you? Yeah, it's funny because I just saw you post some stuff you did with the mocap Rococo suit, which I have coming in the mail. It's being delivered tomorrow. So that's pretty much what's next on my plate is doing custom mocap data with, um, I did like a sponsorship with Rococo. So I owe them a couple of tutorials, but I think that's going to be my next leap into how to use the mocap suit with Unreal, you know, to generate real time mocap data. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm friends with those folks. They're, they're really nice people and they're, they're all about trying to get like really like way more affordable motion capture solutions into the consumer's hands and I guess bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what it seems like. Cause I mean, the next step up will be what X and they're like 45, $50,000 just to get into. So yeah. when I saw what Rococo was doing, I was like, yeah, let me holler at these guys instead, <laughs> instead and see what we can work out. Cause it seems like they're more focused on the indie developer. You're hundred percent right. They are. They really want to show people that, this type of technology is affordable and accessible now, and the quality is phenomenal. Like, I actually used the Rokoku suit to do um, the motion capture for uh, Little Nas's music video. Yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah. And so they, we, we did the, you know, I just got their dancer, the main choreographer, into the suit. We recorded about 16 takes with slight different variations. Um, the biggest kind of hurdles that you'll get using the Rokoku suit, which I'll just give you a heads up, they're not too bad, but you might want to know this going in. <laughs> Getting the networking to work with your IP address and the suit's IP address for me was the most like complicated part. Don't get me wrong, like it, it totally works, but essentially you have to go into your PC, you have to turn off a certain firewall with like adding like a certain exception to their software, and then the suits can talk together. And like everything has to be kind of perfectly aligned. It, the IP address, the port number needs to match perfectly and then as soon as that's done and then it's a complete breeze then you're just throwing on the suit and launching rokoku and then all of a sudden you'll see your avatar load in there so is that a one-time setup or is that something that you have to you like go through every time you're looking to set it up so they advertise it as the one-time setup but here's the truth i've had to do it a lot of times 
And the reason why is um, you have to, the suit tracks your data through Wi-Fi. What's weird about that is you have to have like a separate router to do that. So what I end up doing is turning off my internet, then plugging in my computer into a Wi-Fi um, output uh, that only talks to the suit. So my computer's kind of in a dumb state while I'm in my Rokoku suit. Um, uh, I it's, see. It's disconnected. So then every time I'm done with my suit, I'm reconnecting the internet. And then when I go back to it, I have to reconfigure it. I still cannot remember the correct things to highlight. So it ends up taking me a little bit of time to set up. Once it's set up, it's great. <laughs> There's no, you're not having like that problem throughout the recording. Um, yes. Sounds like that would make for a good tutorial. Yeah. Oh yeah, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that way you can go back and reference it. I do that often, like you know, it's like I'm always on my YouTube channel referencing the stuff that I've done. So, if there's too much metal in your room, uh, it's going to interfere with the capture. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, but there, it's like for real though. Like I thought it was kind of just like a you know a blank, like maybe just a random warning that was subtle. It's not subtle if you're if you're by like a big speaker or something or a metal light. It's like, it's like you know, anywhere that you get bad Wi-Fi, you're actually going to get bad tracking data. Have you tried it outside at all? Yes. And it does it work better outside or no? Yeah, I've had it work fine outside. Um, okay, yeah, because that's what I was thinking when they told, because they gave me that disclaimer. So I was wondering, I'm like, maybe I'll take it out to the field or something and try it out there. Yeah, what I've, what I've set up to like the ultimate mobile motion capture solution I've made this, um, I went to Best Buy and they have this giant external battery um, that you can charge and have like a ton of charge on. The thing's heavy though, like you want to almost use a wagon to carry it around places. Oh wow. And then I plug in my laptop into that, I plug in my Wi-Fi router into that, and then I even charge extra batteries for the suit into that. And essentially, you can bring this wagon with these components with you and you can take motion capture virtually anywhere. Like you're not limited or constrained by any physical space at this point. After Apple was like, okay, we're pulling Unreal from any Apple developer. I was like, oh, okay, this is getting serious. Right. Yeah, that, that freaked me out too. Cause I was like, wait a second, is Unreal gonna go away if if Apple closes it down? Like, will that will that kill Unreal? I don't think it would kill Unreal because it's to my understanding that Unreal doesn't run the greatest on Macs to begin with. Like, I don't have a Mac. I'm all PC, so I don't have a, you know, there's no way for me to verify that. But that's just ramblings that I've heard that, you know, Unreal usually performs a lot better on PC. Well, have you seen those virtual influencers like Apaki or AI Angel? Like, they're complete 3D CG avatars, but... They have like millions of followers like on YouTube and Instagram. And these are completely fake characters that we don't even know who's behind them. I mean, it could be like a middle-aged 45-year-old guy, you know, overweight that's like playing these young female characters, but it's completely CG avatars and they're doing like karaoke and all this influencer stuff and they get like a pretty big following. And it's all, you know, like real-time mocap and facial capture that's driving it. Yes, I have been low-key obsessed with them recently. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it's really interesting to me. Like, I, I found a team that did the Apaki one. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Apaki. She kind of... Yeah, tell me about her. The, she, she, okay, so she's like a female rabbit, I would say maybe around early 20s. Like, if you think of, like, Babs Bunny, I would say it's like Gap, but in the 3D character. And she does okay. a ton of, like, I guess you would say cover works, like, 
these look like full music videos. Like she was saying, like, um, like think of any popular song that's out right now. She'll do like a full performance and it's all a CG. You can tell it's running in real time and unreal. Mm-hmm. And they're doing like these massive music videos. And, you know, it's almost like a glorified karaoke session. But she's pulling in like a ton of views, like millions and millions of views. And I found a team that's behind her. It's like a four. It's a group of four guys out of South Korea that are driving this avatar. And wow. you wouldn't even know it. You would think it would be like some female, you know, at her house or something. And it's like, no, it's actually a group of four guys. That's I guess they're like a startup. But yeah, they're showing like what virtual influencers could, you know, what they could achieve these days. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely obsessed with all the um, technical aspects of, of creating virtual influencers and virtual avatars, um, especially real-time ones, interactive ones. Um, but I'm just curious for you, like, do you ever think about uh, any of the ethical problems <laughs> that might come from this? Or just, like, <clears throat> ideas of humanity that might struggle to keep up with the definitions of who these entities are? Yeah, see, that's the tough side about it because, like yourself, I'm I'm a tech geek at heart, so I'm looking at it as like a technological marvel. I'm just like seeing this, and I'm just like, wow, people are doing this, and it's actually happening. But on the flip side, you get into maybe I mean, you get into like that early '90s era of like Vogue magazine, like when everybody's using Photoshop to take the models and really manipulate them, like take away any blemishes and make them skinnier. And then, you know, like females are thinking like, I, I, there's no way I can achieve this. So right. it's given like a false sense of beauty. And so we might get into something of that area. Like people are making these avatars that look photo real and they're making them in a way that they think, you know, people should look. And so you see these young kids on there, they see these people and it's kind of hard to, you know, tell reality from false reality online. Mm-hmm. And so these kids might see this and be like, I look nothing like this. There's no way, you know, I could be popular like this because this person looks too perfect. You know, I always bring up this movie. Bruce Willis was in it, but I can never remember the name. It was kind of like this type of era where everybody would have like a false avatar that they would live through. And like Bruce Willis was like the only person that wanted to live in like the real world. But everybody else was like, no, we hate the way that we are. We want to live in this false world that's virtually online. And so it's like the streets are deserted because there's nobody like out in the real world. Like everybody's in these virtual headsets living in the virtual life. And it's like it could kind of get to that point. Maybe not soon, but, you know, that's a real possibility sometime in the future. Yeah, see, that's that's the intense truth is I think part of that's going to come true. I mean, it's kind of like up to everyone's decision on on how we use these technologies. Are you familiar with the virtual influencer, Little Michaela? Is that the one that just signed a deal with Calvin Klein? Yes, that is. The yes. One. Yeah. Yep. She, for me, is one of the most interesting virtual influencers that I know of. Yeah, I've only seen like the first time I heard of her was when. I think I was reading on Tube Filter as like the first virtual avatar to sign like an actual deal with a clothing company. And it was Calvin Klein. And I looked into her and I was like, this is crazy. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's hard enough for like real people to get a deal with Calvin Klein. Now we got to compete with virtual characters. To me, it, it kind of reminds me of something that's actually pretty old of a concept. You know, like Tony the Tiger or yeah. Toucan Sam. These are kind of like avatars that represent a brand, but don't represent, it's not like Tony the Tiger is not real in the sense of 
like a real tiger that's sentient and cartoony and but what's different than those characters is that they're at least posed as fictions and they're and they're kind of their characters the difference with what's happening now is these fictitious characters are acting and saying that they're real yeah i saw that music video that she put out and she was the only cg character in this entire music video it's like with real people at a mansion and <laughs> it, yeah it was like crazy because she fit right in like people are interacting with her and she's acting humanist and i'm just like yeah this is this is wild what people are doing these days yeah little michaela's team is about 42 people oh wow really it's literally one of my goals by the end of 2020 is i want to help collaborate on at least one post of little michaela's well you yeah. gotta come up with your own avatar and then maybe guys can start doing virtual influencer collaborations that's exactly what i'm trying to do <laughs> that's why i want to yeah. get my character up and running um with uh <clears throat> with full real time everything because then I'll be able to use this character as something that can like teach classes, but then also it would be so easy to collaborate with people as a, as an avatar <laughs> in that capacity. Yeah. Cause I don't think that's been done before. Yeah. This, you'd be like the first one to do it. I just find it so fascinating. It's like building a, a live interactive fiction into reality and, and then not saying that it's a fiction. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. So basically all the training and playing the Sims when everybody was like young and <clears throat> young and teenagers is coming to reality now. Okay, it sounds just like you're playing The Sims, but in real life now. It's you're right. That's actually a great comparison to it. We are we've been trained to play with Sims, and now we're just making the Sims photorealistic and and and, and integrating them into our real life conversations, so that you're not you're not saying it's a Sim. You're just saying like, oh, she's little Michaela. Even the fact that I know it's 42 people, I keep calling it her. Yeah, yeah. It's that convincing. <laughs> I'm just surprised there's so many people. You're able to get so many people together to just control this one entity like that, you know? Yeah, it kind of reminds me like a little bit of like Disney, you know? <clears throat> and then they get to control Mickey Mouse. Oh, yeah, I guess that is true. So like Mickey Mouse represents the ideals of like that whole corporation. But like Mickey Mouse has been transformed in so many different capacities and has had so many characters made and rigged. Like, Mickey Mouse isn't you know, inherently real. It's as real as they've made it and, and as real as we all believe and accept it. Right, yeah. What do you think is going to come after real time? I don't know. What can come after? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the question, right? Well, I feel like we're still trying to perfect real time. Like, you know, we have ray tracing, which is still not really perfected. I'm kind of curious to what, like, the... NVIDIA is going to post, I guess that's in like a week or two with the new cards right. and see how far ray tracing is coming then. Because like I was just actually having a meeting with Epic the other day mm -hmm. going over the stuff I'm working with on them. And um, like I couldn't get ray tracing global illumination working without a bunch of issues. And Ooh. they're just like, you know, that's something that we're working out. So that tutorial that I put up this morning came from that conference. Like they showed me a better way that actually, you know, it's not as expensive on the hardware to get global illumination. And so, you know, I shared that with everybody out there, but you know, the ray tracing stuff still has a long way to go. And so until that gets perfected, I feel like real time is still, you know, it's still going to be something that's around for a while. I'm familiar with the term expensive when it, when talking about computers, but can you explain that concept? What What is an expensive process and what does that mean in terms of rendering? Yeah, so the best way to put it is, well, since these are game engines, I will talk about maybe like the Xbox or the PlayStation. Whenever you're building a video game, 
there's a bunch of hacks and things you have to do to be able to have the hardware run at like optimal performance. And so like a key target for most games is like 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second. And so like the Holy Grail is 60 frames per second. And if you want to hit that, if you have a bunch of stuff that's taxing on the system, it's going to lower your frame rate. And so that all comes with your global illumination, your shadowing, your reflections, your refractions, things of that nature. And so whenever we say like, if you put on like some type of process on your, your system and we're saying that's going to be expensive on a system that, that technically means it's going to knock the frame rate down because your machine has to do that much more calculating to get that, you know, desired effect that you're looking for. Thank you so much. Because I know when I was first trying to understand real time, I didn't understand that term. So I think if someone's listening today and they're like, uh, expensive, like the machine's expensive, <laughs> you know, that's how I thought of it initially. And I was like, oh, I guess it must have taken an expensive machine. And then my friend was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's it's what you described right there. Yeah. I mean, it's something I'm still learning as well, especially with this next console generation jump. It's kind of like the games look good already. So what exactly are you going to be getting out of your PlayStation 5 or your Xbox Series X? And that's exactly what you're going to be get. Like the hardware is better. So your games are going to be able to perform that much better because, I mean, they look great now. So the only thing that's lacking is the performance of these games. So you'll get higher frame rates, you'll get higher resolution, and your machine's not going to take a hit on it. You know, that, that kind of brings up a question I had. Like, I would totally get a PlayStation 5 if I could use it to also render stuff, <laughs> like Unreal. You know, it might be possible. I remember with the PlayStation 3, NASA was using it to run calculations on their different simulations and stuff. Like, I remember seeing a picture of, what? like, this rack of just, like, PS3s at, <laughs> I want to say, is that, like, JPL or something crazy? So, what? Because it's a lot cheaper to buy a game system than it is like a whole, you know, whole new computer. So they would just get these PlayStations and throw them into a rack and run like, you know, space mission calculations on these things. So I would say it's not totally out of the realm of possibility. Dude, that is so exciting to hear. Oh, man, I'm going to I might get one now if, it, if it's possible. Yeah, I would say um, maybe wait. Oh, <laughs> until yeah. the price comes down because <laughs> it's at your discretion because you probably will have to hack into it to uh-huh. be able to get it to do what you want. But, I mean, these things are running so close to being a PC anyway. I would imagine that they probably wouldn't take too much work to get them to, you know, start rendering. How much interest do you have in virtual production? I get asked about it a lot. So it might be just out of necessity. I have to really start jumping into it. Like, it's piqued my interest, but with all the studios being closed, I don't have a lot of space here to really experiment with it just in my home studio. But I have been getting a lot of questions about it from different studios since the lockdown. A lot more people are, you know, I guess have a lot more time on their hands. So they're researching this stuff, trying to future proof. And I actually had a company the other day try to put me on a retainer to try to, because they're building a virtual production studio and they saw my one tutorial. Like I did a tutorial on how to use your iPad within Unreal to use as a virtual camera. So I guess that automatically made me like an expert on virtual production. (laughs) I get hit up by all these companies. They're like, we're trying to build a studio and we want your expertise. And I'm just like, I just did one tutorial. I have no idea how to go over and beyond that just because I haven't had a chance to really experiment with it. Right. That's so funny though. But that's kind of the truth. Like if you make a tutorial on it, people assume that you have like, I mean, tons of experience, even 
if it's warranted or not. They're like, oh, well, you know, you already know what this stuff is. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we want to build something like the Mandalorian. It's like, well, I don't think they were using iPads on a Mandalorian. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it will, um, it will come in due time. Like, hopefully stuff starts opening back up and I get more access to be able to start playing with these things, like camera tracking and led walls and how you have to calibrate those together to get them to run correctly because i know just watching some of the stuff in the mandalorian bts even with their expertise they were still running into problems and so yeah it's that type of thing where you want to learn from others mistakes so but it's kind of hard to practice when you can't you know physically get hands-on with this stuff yeah it's a good point but at least with you being you know showing that you can do it with an ipad like, you know, using the cam, using the iPad's um, accelerometer and gyroscope to drive the virtual camera in Unreal, in Unreal Engine. I mean, that, that actually opens up a lot of doors for videographers and DPs who want to jump into, you know, real-time workflows. They can maybe use their same camera gear to hold it, yeah. like a, almost like a, you know, like a cam, because like, it's, it's still kind of uncomfortable to film holding an iPad because of its shape, but it might yeah. be easier if you have, like, a two-hand grip on... A larger object it's like shoulder mounted and you're kind of guiding that around your space and getting these beautiful dolly shots or whatever um in the system yeah funny you should say that i'd actually just built a shoulder rig to do exactly that <laughs> so that's one of my tutorials coming up i need time to experiment <laughs> with it but yeah i built a shoulder rig to house my ipad but i was thinking i'm like why don't i take it one step further mm-hmm. and use my black magic pocket cinema 4k and try to calibrate the two together so that I could shoot like somebody on a green screen in real time and be able to track them with the iPad as well. So that's what I'm trying to build now is some type of contraction so that I can actually try to link the two, like the camera and the iPad together. Wow. See, that's, 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 that's what it takes to be ahead. <laughs> you know, gotta, put, <laughs> you gotta put the pieces together and be like, Hmm, I could do this or I can combine it with something that people aren't doing. And guess what? I bet there's like maybe, maybe two tutorials online about what you're describing. Maybe. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, it's so I, new. I just like tinkering. So it just comes more from a passion of getting something in your head and trying to figure it out and not really stopping until you figure it out more than anything else. Like, that's my thing. Like, I set a goal for myself, I figure it out, and then I feel accomplished, and then it's on to the next thing. Hmm. That's dope. I, I I kind of follow that same philosophy as well, so it's cool to hear it. Yeah, I can tell. Else. I can see you. Well, yeah, like since I've been following you on IG, I've been seeing all the stuff that you've been just playing around with, and I'm like, that's exactly the same path that I follow. Like, you find something and you just get passionate about it, and you just you know you figure it out. Then want to share it with the world. Man, I was speaking of that stuff, um, insp- inspiration. Do you have any particular people that in- that inspire you? Um, yeah, that's a tough one, especially because the internet's so oversaturated these days. It's like I see, it's not like one person. It's kind of like I see things that I just see in like my different feeds, whether it's like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Like I'll see something dope on there. And that's more inspiring than just like one single person because there's so many people doing stuff all the time that you just, you like, you constantly keep seeing dope stuff out there. So it's more about the stuff that I'm just seeing rather than like one individual that's doing a bunch of stuff if that makes sense. And you mentioned how going into nature inspires you, gets a lot of like ideas kind of observing. So is it kind of along the same lines? Like you get, 
you get your inspiration from environment. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Like, I wish there was something more curated to my taste. Like, every time, like, I have an idea or something in my head, it's like, oh, I wonder if there's, like, a website that kind of, like, has these type of experiences or something that I could, like, go through and just kind of get, you know, some type of reference from. But, mm-hmm. like, I mean, the internet's just, there's so much out there. It's kind of hard to just pinpoint something that's curated. But, yeah, so I kind of just, if I see something dope, I'll bookmark it just so I can always reference that later. Yeah. Ooh, speaking of that, do you follow hashtags on Instagram? I just started, yeah. I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's embarrassing. I didn't even know you could do that for the longest. But, yeah, I just started doing it. No problem. Um, yeah, it's like it's one of those features they announced a while ago and then they just they don't bring it up. They don't talk about it a lot. And it's kind of hard to search for it. You have to kind of dive in to see it. Um, for those that are listening here. Yes, you can follow hashtags instead of people on Instagram now um, and you can follow and curate stuff. Uh, I was so curious now that you've learned about it. Um, what hashtags are you following or, you know, which ones did you add to your list of things to follow? Actually, I could pull it up right now. Like, I know I do hashtag, like, Redshift, the Cinema 40, and Octane, and Unreal. There's some artsy ones in there. I can't think of all of, like, maybe Render Zone or some of them. And then, like, hashtag Abstract and stuff of that nature. Then a bunch of gaming ones, like hashtag Xbox, PlayStation, things of that nature. But I need to start, I guess, broadening. Like, you know, just finding other type of hashtags, maybe outside of realm of stuff that I'm really into, just so I could kind of be inspired by other things, maybe like hashtag um, archivist or something of that nature. Just try to pull in like other mediums into my fold so I'm not seeing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it can, that's a good point. So I know like some people get like almost a fatigue from looking at their feed and seeing the same kind of images and same kind of posts. And they're like, uh, this isn't what I want to see right now. Um, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of telling people like, you got to curate your feeds. You have to make it so that if, if this social media app is going to hijack your data and your attention, it better be feeding you good, excuse my language, but it needs to feed you some good shit in, in return for, for taking so much away from us. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, are you are you like do you hyper curate your feeds in a sense on your social channels? Not in particular, no. Okay, well, I will be a an advocate for it if you ever want to go down that path. Um, I can give you some examples. Like whenever I see an ad that doesn't apply to me, I actually report it and say that it makes me want to leave the platform. <laughs> I've I've started to do that just because of all the political stuff, especially on YouTube and Twitter. Like any mm-hmm. political ad, I automatically just report it. Cause it's just like, I guess so much of that anyway. It's like I kind of use these platforms to escape that stuff. And now that they're folding it into what I'm trying to look at, I'm just like, I'm not with it. So I know some of the platforms, though, even though you report it, it seems like it's right back there again. Like they're not even taking that into you know, account of yes. what you're you know, downvoting or reporting to YouTube or whatever. Yeah, what's funny is like their main metric they use to, to, to take your report seriously is two, it's actually two metrics. It's your repetition and it's your watch time. So if you repeatedly report similar things, it's going to vanish. You'll never see it again. Um, but if you report something, but you still stare at it when it happens again accidentally, that actually sends the reverse signal to Instagram's feed and algorithm and says, oh, 
this actually keeps this person on our platform longer. So we're going to keep showing it to them. Oh, wow. Dang. <laughs> they, um, cause they found, um, actually I'm not sure if enough people know this. Instagram doesn't just track your taps and likes. It actually tracks how long, um, any posts is on your screen per user. That's crazy. I did hear that for YouTube, but I didn't realize the other platforms are doing that as well. Yeah, for I think for for those listening right now, be careful of what you're staring at. Um, Instagram is taking log, and the reason why they did this was they wanted to come up with a way that that could account for users that don't um, quote unquote engage, which they define as a like, a comment, um, a double tap. So these um, there's people on there that don't do this on Instagram at all. They don't they don't use it in that capacity, but they do just pass through. They swipe through. And so Instagram came up with a nice way of still logging their data, and it's based off of screen watch time. Yeah, I wonder if they did that because in some countries they actually um, they ban like the like and stuff like that, didn't they? Because it was causing some type of psychological issues with the teens. Like I think in Canada you can't like a post or anything like that. What? I've never heard of this. Whoa. Yeah, I, th- I think Canada comes to mind. Like they were saying it was having such an impact on their youth just because, you know, somebody would post something and they might get two likes. And mentally, like especially if you're like a teenager and you're still trying to figure yourself out, I mean, something like that, even though it seems dumb to us, I mean, it can mean the world to a teenager, you know, because they're totally. with their friends at school and you might have some popular girl getting like, hundreds of likes and here you are getting two likes. So you're like, man, I'm worthless. And it was actually leading to like a lot of depression and more serious notes. So I know some countries, I don't know if they implemented it, but I know it was a big talk of banning that like feature in a lot of the social media platforms. And these numbers actually do have a pretty significant impact on the psyche of the user. That's um, that's interesting because have you ever used a platform Byte before, B-Y-T-E? Yeah, it's fairly new, but what was it? Oh, the people, I think it's the people that built Vine back in the day. yes. They came out with a new platform and yeah, it's supposed to compete with what TikTok, I think is his biggest competitor. And so whenever the ban on TikTok was becoming more popular, Byte just kind of grew in popularity. But their big thing was like, if you click on someone's profile, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't see like how many followers or how many people they're following. Like it just showed you the profile. Like you don't see any other information. Yeah, that was like the case study that Instagram was experimenting with was, you know, could we have people like the platform more without it? But it turns out it makes it less addicting. Yeah. And you would think as an influencer, it probably hurts you as well. Like say that you have like a million followers and nobody can see that, then, you know, like mm-hmm. advertisers might not be attracted to you or, you know, that, you know, those numbers do count. So that's how you get sponsorship deals and they look at all those algorithms and everything. So not having those on display, you might get some people that just glance over you. I follow a ton of AI, machine learning, database, computer art kind of um, hashtags because a lot of those folks are building these cutting edge, very nerdy, very fun, very creative technical tools for AI. But a lot of the folks don't have marketing backgrounds and they don't have design or creative backgrounds. And I realized that if you worked as a designer with somebody who's developing AI at their home, you can make stuff that's really, really cool and very different and actually would fulfill needs that aren't being met yet online. There was this, I'm trying to find it now, somebody that built an AI system within Unreal and it made abstract art that automatically got posted to Instagram every single day. 
and the art looks but. really, really nice. Like, you know, if you go to like a museum and you would see maybe like a couple of stone fixtures and they're in the corner, just like yeah. circles and cylinders and things of that nature. Like it was mm-hmm. using basic shapes like that, but yeah. it was conforming them in these different postures and with different textures and lighting that made it look like you had an artist to actually spend some time on it. And it was all completely ran by AI. And it's like, it has its own Instagram profile and everything. And it's just constantly posting every single day. And I'm just like, man, that's who we're competing with now. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I love that stuff. Um, Do you know what their name is? I'm trying. I just found it. It is, um, it's by a guy named Matthias. Oh man, his thing just went. Okay. Matthias, W-I-N-C-K-E-L-M-A-N-N. I'll um, actually Matthias W. Sorry, um, I'll actually chat it to you on Instagram. Oh, perfect! See. It's making artwork like this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and that's like that's popular right now. Like this is, is an art style like that's very popular. Yep, it's minimal. God, I can totally see how you can write a script for this. Um, but these are in Unreal. You're saying? Yeah, it's rendering real time in Unreal, so he's able to just post. Well, it's not even him posting it. I guess he wrote it to where. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the AI just makes this art and then just posts it up on Instagram. Oh, my God. Sorry. I'm I'm kind of mind blown here. Uh, I wasn't expecting this. So his name is Raquel. That's what the name of the... That's <laughs> the AI's name. Of the AI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at Ra- oh, it's like, at Raquelic. R-A-C-H-A-E-L-L-I-C for those listening. If you want to see some um, artificially intelligent... Um, computer-generated art through Unreal Engine real-time. It's at R-A-C-H-A-E-L-L-I-C on Instagram. Wow, this is so cool, and I'm actually going to try this now. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because sometimes you'll see comments of people are like, oh, how'd you do this? Can you make a tutorial? And it's like they don't realize they're talking to an AI. <laughs> it's like this isn't a real artist on Instagram. My, my, my brain rendering wasn't as high quality as this render. <laughs> yeah, but you see what I'm saying? I mean, it looks like museum art. I mean, it's pretty well put together. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious, too, about the kind of node tree that that artist... Actually, how, did the, how does the creator define themselves? If you would, like, Are they a generative artist? Um, yeah, I don't know exactly. Or are they a programmer who's like, I'm going to... I think he has an about me thing on a website. Let me see. Oh, I see it about all right says matthias winkleman director designer artist matthias winkleman is a freelance creative director designer and real-time cg enthusiast neat okay well that's some big inspiration for me right now i'm gonna have to learn this do you ever um touch houdini by any chance no i gave up on it (laughs) yeah it's one of those things like i've installed it several times open it up just get lost and then close it back up after five minutes so yeah it's just with especially now with unreal i have so much to learn still that i mean it's just hard to try to learn two programs at once that's that's a good point (laughs) well at least two programs that are that heavy at once like i mean houdini that's a lifetime of learning in itself yeah i mean I'm, i'm with you on that one uh I, I try to learn a little bit of Houdini. I know a very tiny amount of it. Um, it's it's useful for you know, certain tasks in my workflow, but I always end up just going back to Cinema 4D for simplicity's sake. And right. and then 
but I am a big fan of Houdini because you can you can do stuff like this generative art. Um, one of the cool things I saw recently was uh, the behind the scenes on how they made um, Far Cry Five, and uh, a lot of the levels were designed in collaboration with Houdini and Unreal. And what they did was they created tools in Houdini that they could use in Unreal Engine. Yeah, because I think the two integrate pretty well together, right? Like, doesn't yes. Houdini actually have a game engine built within it? Oh, I didn't know that. If it does, I'm not surprised, but I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I think if we could, I remember that's something that I saw back when I was trying to learn Houdini. I think it was called like Houdini Gaming or something, but mm-hmm. it has a game engine built in there that you could do a lot of the work in Houdini and then transfer that to Unreal and get like 95%, if not 100% of where you want to be. Yeah, this stuff is just getting integrated more and more every day. I have this random theory on what, what happens after real time once we master it as a species. I think we're going to find a way to um, recreate experiences without using the optic nerve at all. And uh, it's all in your mind. Brain-computer interfaces that can stimulate your visual cortex without using your eyes. So pretty much like the Matrix at that point? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well said, yeah. Yeah, I think that this is a precursor, like real time and AI and all this stuff is a precursor to us ultimately building a matrix-like environment where people can, you know, do VR without a headset. Yeah, I know more industrialized areas that might be a reality, but what about like third world areas that don't have, you know, access to that tech? Yeah, I've um, I actually read a book recently. The wealthier regions get the technology first, and then they make versions that are. It gets usually it does kind of trickle down. The example they usually allude to is how smartphones are very ubiquitous everywhere now. But when they first came out, they were only for a very very tiny population with a lot of money. And then eventually, the development of them made it become something that became a lot more affordable. You get the Android market, you get this, you get all these devices everywhere, and now people can reasonably expect that they can find people online through a smartphone. But it's a trickle down; it does not happen immediately. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I think what will happen is probably in like Silicon Valley, there's going to be some big developments in the VR and AR space. And uh, or in, and like maybe you make a brain computer interface that is so compelling and then eventually a version of it comes down brain link version eight, you know, that one comes out and now it's affordable. Other people can just put this little thing on the side of their temple and then they're they're in the matrix if they choose to. Yeah, it's kind of like, what's the point of living at that point? Because then everybody be stationary potatoes, essentially. That is possible, but it comes down to mindset, you know. Like if if you were given an infinite VR experience that everyone was part of, and if you got to choose your avatar, you know it becomes it just comes down to like the conscious uh, agent that's controlling it, and whatever they whatever that conscious agent wants to do in their time in this virtual space. Yeah, but then I think of like Wally, the movie Wally, where people weren't moving around so much that their bodies just became blobs and they forgot how to walk and, you know, like the skeletal systems weren't really developing. So it's kind of like, you know, 
we're built to like they always say early man was hunter and gatherers like our bodies are built to physically move and you know be out and about like we're not built to just be stationary like you can see the physical attributes that are happening to us as we get older since we you know we work on a computer a lot we're getting carpal tunnel or we're getting Mm -hmm. back aches we're getting eye problems from staring at the screen right so it's almost like that times 10 you know at that point because it's like you're absolutely probably not going to be moving if you could do everything just within your mind it's like what's the point then like why do you need to go anywhere yeah, you bring up a great example. I do have some counter uh, positive examples that could counteract that very negative potential future for us <laughs> humans. <laughs> what I imagined, and I even made a little concept video for it, which I'm going to send to you in a second, was imagine if you had a virtual AR assistant um, that was like a health coach that basically rewarded you for movement. You get an AR avatar that basically encourages you to collect virtual crystals that only appear on a physical hike you have to physically go and collect them and they Uh, actually give you cryptocurrency for collecting all of them so you actually make money by exercising and you're using the ai and the ar system to basically just influence your hike in a sense so like it would it would be up to the people like us that are the developers using this matrix technology to put it to good use we could go full couch potato mode and there will be some definitely people that would want those experiences but then there's going to be people like me who wouldn't be too thrilled with having to be a couch potato in in the matrix. I would want to I would I would definitely want to have like a virtual workout partner if I needed. Yeah, see I would like something augmented like that, like still have, you know, one sense in the real world and one sense in the virtual world, but going full on virtual, I could see that being very detrimental to humanity itself. I just sent it to you but um, I think at that point you'll become not really a human. You're a different species eventually. If, yeah. If you're if you're just a bunch of data points living in the matrix, you're not really a human anymore. It's right. Like, right. It's like I don't even know what that is. It's not even like really a cyborg. You're just like a, a cluster of data patterns. I guess that would be like the ghost in the show, right? Yes, that's it. <laughs> you're right. We'd all just be ghosts in the shell. Yeah. <laughs> at that at that rate. Uh, but yeah, so I just sent that one to you. And this one I was imagining like, I like synthwave, I like retro aesthetic. And I imagined I would be down to go hike a mountain if there was all these vaporwave crystals along the path. <laughs> and I would totally get up and hike right now if that was an option. Um, yeah. And so I kind of imagined like, you know, you have all these little crystals, you have to follow them. And then there's a little AI buddy who comes up almost like a drone who lives in your AR glasses or your contact lenses, who's like, yo, you're almost there. Don't give up yet. We're almost done with the run. You know, you only have like one more mile. You're like, okay, okay, okay. I'll keep going. I'm going to keep working at it. I mean, something like this would be, I mean, I would definitely, I'm looking at it now. This is something that I would definitely be into. Just like I've tried to mimic this just on my treadmill. Like I have my iPad hooked up to my treadmill and there's like YouTube channels that are curated just for like people will go on hikes and like record them with a GoPro or whatever, but it's like super clean. Like they, you know, they, um, they take out all the, the motion and everything and make it look like they're just going on these hiking trails and there are four people that are like on their exercise bike or their treadmill. So, you know, it's just so like, you're not so bored staring at a wall when you're on your treadmill, you can actually have like the screen in front of you and it's not like you feel like you're running on that trail, but at least you have something, 
you know, some type of scenery in front of you that's kind of simulating the actions that you're doing. So this right here, what you just like, what you just showed me is mm-hmm. kind of like taking that to that next level because yeah. you're actually out in the field and you have all these virtual items around you. Yeah, film this up in Griffith Park, up the street, and was like, I don't know. I just was imagining what, what would actually make me work harder right now than than just walking up this hill. I and this is my answer. <laughs> it would be like this, you know, turn the hill walk into a game, like literally the gamification of of working out. Have you uh, done any of the workout app um, VR apps? That are yeah, I use FitXR every day. Well, they just made it fix FitXR. It used to be Box VR, which I mean, it's still the same application, but they updated it. But it's essentially a boxing game for exercising in VR. So if you think of like Beat Saber, yes. but with boxing instead. Oh, so it's like rhythmic and timing based. Yeah, yeah. So you're doing boxing drills like you're doing squats, and you have to duck and weave, and you have to hit the items as they're coming at you, but they added like um, a calorie counter in there and there's actually online so you can work out with people all around you. So it's like you're kind of battling to get like a high score and stuff. But that's how I've been trying to keep in shape since, you know, all the gyms are locked down. Because that kind of mixes like the world. You're now in VR, but now it's the opposite of couch potato. (laughs) It's like you're going to go to the gym in VR right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. I'm sending you over the link now to it. Yeah. But using this for about a year now. Like I said, they just Fit retrofitted XR. it. Now it's FitXR, but it's pretty good. See, it says FitXR out now. Welcome to FitXR. FitXR is our new virtual fitness studio that brings the energy of group fitness classes to your home. Even if you love to train, it can feel boring and unrewarding. FitXR removes the no pain, no gain mantra and makes exercise enjoyable. We've incorporated the power of group workouts into FitXR with motivating music, leaderboards, and personalized advice from top fitness instructors. Damn, that sounds cool. They should sponsor this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I say, I mean, always when people ask what it is, I just say it's basically Beat Saber, but with boxing instead. Wow, actually, this is the one that I have. I just haven't been in it in a long time. Oh, yeah, they just, they updated it. So it's like almost completely different now. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I, I particularly liked that you could change the um, workout room that you wanted to fight in. Uh, yeah. And, and for those listening, um, what I liked about it was not so much the fighting aspect. You're just hitting objects because there was another boxing VR app that was also advertised towards me. But it was like really gory and like you're hitting avatars that bleed and sweat. And I was like, I don't want to look. At that. <laughs> That's not what I want to do right now. Um, these ones are just like these big circles and spheres and they shatter with particles, you know, and they're all trippy and um, very high energy. Oh, cool. I'm going to get back into it now. Now that it's, wow, they renamed it and everything. And look, okay, I'm going to go and have yeah, to I was, try that one out again. They just updated out of nowhere. I remember putting on my quest and it was like a big update. I updated it and it was almost like a completely new game. Oh my God. It works on your quest? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm I've, doing it with my tethered one. I have to be very careful not to punch the <laughs> the wire off my head. <laughs> yeah, now I use the Oculus Quest. Like since oh, I got the Quest, so cool. I kind of sold all my tethered headsets. Like this, the Quest is pretty much all I use anymore. Wow, because you don't even have to worry about sensors and like ports for all of that stuff. And exactly, yeah. Damn, even though so I'm kind of sad that I sold my HTC Vive because right when I sold that is right when I got into Unreal. And so oh, it's like now that, yeah, the, the Vive trackers and right. all that stuff works in the Unreal. I'm just like, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have sold that now. But 
you know, it is what it is. Is there anything that you see people that are in your industry that you think they're not focusing on enough? I guess maybe being and in, like innovative, like a lot of people just kind of seem to be content with what they're doing right now, whether it's, you know, just sticking with offline rendering or thinking about like different type of, um, uh, how should I say it? Like different type of aesthetics, you know, like some artists, they get comfortable with one look and they get really good at it, but then that's all they're doing. It's like, they're not really trying to think outside their comfort zone and try new things. Or, you know, like you're asking about Houdini, it's like even just trying new programs. Like I know a lot of cinema artists that won't even look at anything but cinema just because they're so good and comfortable at it. And they're missing out on all oh, this new tech that's out there. I mean, I like right. cinema, but yeah. the code is kind of old at this point. And mm-hmm. you see some of the programs coming out like Embergen, which oh is- Oh my God, have you played with that from, yet? I was there day one. I was in the alpha and it was when I first saw it, I um, (laughs) hit up the developer, Nick. I was like, dude, you got to send this to me. I got to try this out. And he's like, oh yeah, I heard of you. No problem at all. So he sent me a key for the alpha and because I didn't believe it at first when I saw the first video. I'm like, there's no (laughs) way because I, you know, I use X particles and just run a simulation could take hours. And yes, it's the heaviest computation on Cinema 4D. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like to the point to where it's, I'm kind of, I'm scared to use it for client work just because I don't want to get stuck at some point, you know, but oh, yeah, once okay. I got into Embergen, I was like, man, this is crazy. Like I'm doing this stuff all in real time and there's no hit to my system. Like I tried it on my laptop. I was still getting 60 frames per second out of it. Holy and smokes. yeah, it was crazy. And it's all on one GPU. And I'm just like, this is wild. And that is this so is wild. This is the future of what people are developing now because it's like people are building programs from the ground up so they're able to utilize the tech that's out there now rather than, you know, the old programs that have been holding a guard for the longest time, like your Mayas and your cinema and even to an extent like Houdini. I mean, these, you know, these programs have been around for decades and it's hard to rewrite code for these things that have just been, you know, so ingrained in what they do. So a lot of these artists, this is all they know and they're scared to kind of think outside a box and try new stuff. And I would just say, you know, just go for it. You have nothing to lose at this point. That's solid advice to the, the newcomers. You know, I, I was watch, once watching a, uh, an interview with people. They asked, um, you know, you're learning all of Cinema 4D. Are you, are you ever going to use any other program? And he's like, no, uh-uh. yeah. <laughs> I'm not touching anything else. And I was like, what? I've talked to him about getting into Unreal. I still have to convince him, but... Yeah, it just, just sucks with that. You can help him get his dailies where he can do two a day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or even, like, sometimes he does videos, you know, and oh, that true. stuff takes hours for him. Like, you know, he'll, he'll work on several machines. Like, he'll do his dailies on one machine, but he'll have another machine rendering a video in the background just because, you know, offline rendering can be kind of slow. Right. And so it's like, think about it. If you take your daily, put it into Unreal, and, you know, start just, jacking these things out as soon as I mean before you know it it's like you don't even have to do just daily steals you can start doing daily videos that's a good man that might be the best argument for him or that you could like convince him on yeah I think the hardest part is just getting him to change his mind (laughs) a little bit about having to learn a new tool that's it sounded like he was against like I don't think he disagrees that the stuff that you can make is amazing out of it it's just the idea of having to embark on a new journey that he's not ever touched is is the heart but if you made a tutorial how to do a beeple daily into a video and you just show really like the data smith plugin 
make it fast and sweet, literally send it to people and say, people, I made this for you. The tutorial is five minutes long. I'll, I'll, I'll get them hooked in at some point. Like I know I talked to Jules about Octane for Unreal because I actually do have an Octane plugin for Unreal. Oh, really? It's, um, it's not what I expected because when he mm-hmm. approached me with it, he was like, yeah, you could just take your scenes straight from cinema that's already using Octane materials and lights and bring them into Unreal and you know, you're off to the races, but Ooh. what they didn't say was it's still offline rendering. <laughs> so it's kind of like Uh-oh. you lose that real time aspect of it. So I'm kind of like, well, the whole reason I use Unreal <laughs> is because it's real time. <laughs> like, if I wanted to just do offline rendering, I would have just stuck in cinema. Yeah, so. there. That's, <laughs> wow, that's a big caveat. <laughs> but I mean, it does look nice, but with mm-hmm. ray tracing and the way ray tracing is going, especially with Unreal 5, it's kind of like, you kind of lose that argument that, hey, you know, our stuff looks nicer because it's offline rendering. Well, it's like, that's not going to be the case. I mean, I think it stuff looks good now, but wait till mm-hmm. 2021 once UE5 comes out and yeah, all those limitations. Your, or, what's your thoughts about that? Because I, I know a tiny bit about Unreal 5. I don't really know. Is it going to be pretty different than Unreal 4? Or is it everything Unreal 4 is and then just more? Is it like a tiny upgrade or is this a humongous upgrade? From it, my understanding, it's a big, big upgrade. Like, hopefully by then, the ray tracing is more solidified. At least that's what I've been told. And the biggest thing is now we could use, like, cinema-ready assets. Like, say they're working on a next Spider-Man movie, and you know how they build, like, all these assets, like these giant cities and all these real-looking assets. Instead of, like, the way you would have to work now, and this would be for anything, like, those assets are so, like, massive. Like, they're high poly counts because they're so detailed that you pretty much have to go in and kind of make like a dummy version of them that are like at a low a lower polygon count and so with unreal 5 it can handle i guess like trillions and trillions of triangles and so they could take like the movie the medi the, um sorry the ready-made assets for like movies and things of that nature and mm-hmm. just bring them into unreal and you don't have to like do any faking with like normal mappings or bump maps or height maps or anything of that nature. It's like you just bring in the asset as is and you're ready to render out and you're not taking any type of performance hit. Wow. So if you looked at that demo that they posted a couple of months ago when they were showing it running on a PlayStation 5 and the artist is like, I took this model straight from ZBrush and I didn't have to lower the polygon count. He's like, I just modeled this as is, all the detail and everything in there. I didn't have to export normal maps or anything. I just brought the model in as is and I'm not taking a hit on performance. It's all still running in real time. You could just bring in a, a heavy asset like that and Unreal can still behave in real time with something like that? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest leap because right now with 4, I mean, it's fast, but you couldn't bring in an asset like that. Like, you have to work in, it's called level of detail, LOD, and the way that Unreal usually works is you have several different levels of LODs. So say, like, the most common is 5, and what each level is, is basically, like, the further away you are from an object, the less polygons it's going to have on it because you don't need to have, like, a high polygon count for stuff that's far away because you're not going to see all that detail. And so to save on the resources on your machine, it's going to have a lower polygon count object. So say like it's a statue and you're like several hundred feet away from it. You're not going to need a ton of definition in there. But the closer you get to it, you are going to start needing to see that detail in there. So what it does is it kind of blends several different models into itself. So you have one statue 
at five different levels and with each level it's going to be at like a higher quality and so until right. you get to the point to where you're right up on it and then you really need to see like all the crevices and all the definition in that statue and that's where it gets really expensive but with unreal to like no more lod's just one model and just throw it in there and you're good to go man i mean that would be that would be a major time saver i wonder how that would affect other programs though because like I know like with ZBrush, it handles millions of polygons with ease, but other programs don't. So like if I took right. my ZBrush model that I made uh, and I wanted to then paint it with Substance Painter, I feel right. like I, as an artist, I would still need to do all my UVs. I'd still might need to do like a low poly thing and scan it if, so that Substance can handle it before I can even bring it into Unreal Engine with this new paint job on top of my 3D mesh. So I wonder if they upgrade. Oh. The, well, I know with um, Mixer, like that's another program that's made by Quixel. Yes. You can act, they're actually like making that to be a competitor to, not ZBrush, what's it called? Substance Painter. And so right now it's still in beta, but you could bring in your objects now and start painting directly on your objects. And I wonder, since they're a part of the Epic family now, I wonder if they're going to get that same tech so that you can just take your model straight from ZBrush into Quixel Mixer, paint it at like a high polygon count, and then export it over to Unreal. Because they do have an exporter where you can export your stuff straight from Mixer into Unreal and everything's like already all linked up. Whoa, if that's the case, man, then look out, Substance. You got to get on this, make it so that we can paint these super dense models. I mean, I guess you could. It's just you just have to have a way stronger machine. Possibly, yeah. But again, Quixel Mixer is free. And so it's like... Is it really? It, yeah, yeah. That's all part of that Megascans acquisition. So I've um, yeah, I've done a couple of tutorials on there where it's like you make your, your textures and everything within Mixer. And then you just kick it out to Quixel Bridge. And then from there, you could just import it directly into Cinema 4D or import it into Unreal Engine. And you don't have to do any type of node, like you don't have to do any type of texture work. Like it brings it in already intact and you're ready to go. Wow. So you're not doing like texture baking or like UDEMs and stuff? No, no, not at all. So, okay. So you're bringing in like a model and then just painting it without thinking about UVs and stuff. Right. I'm going to have to tell my girlfriend about this because like, that's been the biggest hurdle for her to convert her 3D work. Uh, she likes to do a lot of 2D painting. Um, she's really good at it. But the process of having to unwrap things and create UDIMs and bake textures is kind of like a, you know, a little prohibitive and, and not as fun as I just want to paint this asset that I modeled. Um, so I have to say with a caveat, it's not 100% there yet. I know that's on our roadmap. Like right now, I think you still... Oh. Like if you, um, if you have an object and you need to paint like in sections, you still have to make like material IDs, but I don't believe you have to worry about unwrapping or anything. I'm trying to find it now so I can send you over the link oh, of their, their latest stuff. But actually this one might work good for you. This isn't a cartoon style. Like before Quixel Mixer was used strictly for making like materials and stuff of that nature. But with this recent update, now you can actually bring in your 3D model to start painting on it, which is like taking a huge gap out of that whole substance painter. Like why would you need painter type um, yeah. argument that's been around for a long time. This is taking a giant gap out of that. Wow. So you really are just painting on this immediately. I mean, wow. I, don't, I guess I'm having, my brain's having troubles understanding this because I'm so trained with like having to unwrap stuff. So like 
Like, what yeah, if I like, wanted to put a if I wanted to put a logo on a rock? Can I just yeah, you stamp, can stamp it on there? Yeah, so I say you can stamp it on there, and you can also work with like AO passes or curvature passes oh and all that stuff too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty in depth. The noise passes and everything. Like, it's pretty wild what you could do on there. I might need to play with this tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have an Epic account, so I yes. mean, you can download it right now. People want to connect with you online. What's the best way they can do that? On Discord, um, the best way to get my Discord channel would be through my YouTube channel because I have my Discord link in all my videos. And so I built like a pretty good community on Discord. We have all walks of life on there, like even dead mouse is on there is as crazy as it is like we have dead mouse on there talking with us because he's an unreal artist himself and um we have like um yeah it's crazy david ari's on there i'm trying to get people on there but we have like a pretty good you know mixture of like pros and beginners on there just all interacting with each other mostly around unreal because that's what i'm most known for so i guess that's what i've been attracting but yeah we have some good artists on there from unreal and cinema 4d and anything else out there so i would say join the discord channel if you can and then my twitter and my my instagram jonathan winbush i'm always on there as well so yeah i think those would be the best places to reach me at right now but i'm really focused on youtube so if you guys could subscribe, that would be a big help, you know, just because those numbers help. Yes, everyone, please subscribe. I've learned a lot from watching his tutorials. And if you like the content that I make, I'm watching tutorials from this individual right here. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get you to put your stuff up so I can reciprocate. <laughs> some of the stuff, I see your stuff on IG and I'm just like, man, if I could watch this on the computer screen or widescreen instead, you know, it might help out. But... I'll do it. I will. I just, you know, it's just like, it's a little bit out of my workflow, but I, yeah, I, see, no, I, got I you. see the need for it. Totally. Um, how do you define reality? Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe that's too big yeah. of a question to put at yeah, the end. <laughs> okay. I'll have to revise so, this. It's still a work in progress. Yeah, that was a deep one. I'm Whoops. trying to think. <laughs> Sorry about that. I guess reality is what you make of it. Like my reality is I'm hustling every day and I'm just trying to get better at my craft and continuously just tinkering away. So just finding something you're passionate about and, you know, just keep prevailing at what you're doing. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Winbush, everybody. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It means a lot to me and I'll wrap up now. <laughs>